Hello, and welcome to the 13th episode of the LI Law Podcast. I'm your host, Zahava Schechter. Our guest on this 13th episode is Rabbi Susan El Kudsi, who serves as a spiritual leader of the Malvern Jewish Center since August 2015. This is Rabbi El Kudsi's second episode with us. So if you have not yet heard the 12th episode, please go back and listen to it because it is fascinating and will be a good lead in for this program. Please also see the show notes for a full description of Rabbi El Kudsi's credentials and contact information. And please keep in mind that we will not be providing legal or spiritual advice to any specific questions. So Rabbi El Kudsi, welcome again to the podcast. Thank you for having me back. It's a pleasure. Let's start talking about uh, security measures, which have changed in religious institutional settings as a result of increased gun violence, whether as a result of the Charleston church shooting or the synagogue shootings in Pittsburgh or San Diego or others, religious institutions have had to face the issue of how to best protect their congregants in the face of random bigoted violence. The possibility that a house of worship, regardless of religious affiliation, would come under attack is one that would never have occurred to me or my contemporaries during our childhood, but things have changed. Gun violence in our schools, churches, synagogues, and mosques has increased, and we do not know where it will strike next. How has this circumstance affected the Malvern Jewish Center, and has this changed the actions, whether by your congregants or your leadership, as to worship in your synagogue? It really is frightening in this day and age, and certainly just over the weekend, two more mass shootings, not in houses of worship, but in places where people gather and where people think they can be safe. I just want to say we're recording this episode on August 6th, 2019, and I believe you're referring to the mass shootings in Dayton, Ohio, as well as El Paso, Texas. Right. Very often, people look at how many mass shootings there have been since Sandy Hook. I lived eight miles away from Sandy Hook when it happened. I didn't know any of the people who were killed, but I knew a lot of people who knew people. And that really shocked us out of our complacency. The idea that these things can happen in a suburban environment, that they can happen at an elementary school. And we've taken some measures. Because our building is owned by a church, we have to work with them. But security is an issue for all houses of worship, whether it's having an armed guard, working with the police departments, both Malvern, Nassau County, and the town of Hempstead, certainly with the high holidays coming up. That's the kind of thing that we need to do. And also look for grants, perhaps from Homeland Security, to put up cameras, to put up a locking door where you need a passcode to get in or some sort of a card. And in Orthodox communities, that's got to be balanced out with the observance of Shabbat and festivals. And I know that there are specific locks that are made that can be used on these days when we might not be able to use certain technologies. Do you find that these enhanced security measures affect worship or affect the number of congregants who will attend a specific service? 
Personally, I have not seen a difference, although there are some people who are afraid to go into a house of worship that does not have an armed guard. Where I think it causes the most problems is in our quest to be inclusive, to welcome the stranger, to increase the number of people who come to our services and programs. If we're going to look suspiciously at everybody we don't know, because as the Nassau Police Commissioner told a group of of synagogue leaders after Pittsburgh, the comment that was relayed to me was, these people walk in looking like you or me, and what he was referring to was having an armed guard, and the first thing he does is knock off the armed guard. So how do we balance the need to be open and welcoming with the obligation to protect our congregants? That, to me, is the $64,000 question in this. I think we have to be aware. I think training in security is important. Are you training your congregants or are we training leadership? I think both. I know that there are many synagogues who have undergone active shooter training, training our congregants to be more aware of who's coming in and also to question people and just be friendly. I mean, if I see somebody I don't know, I walk over, I extend my hand, I introduce myself and I ask them how they heard about us. Beyond that, it's a real dilemma. So do you think this is something that may be confronted, meaning that we can deal properly with this matter without leading to further hatred or divisiveness in our community? I think we can. And I think a lot has been said and written about how we maintain our inclusiveness while still protecting ourselves. I hope you're right. And God willing. Yeah. So I'd like to turn to the measles epidemic which has been growing in New York State as well as other states. New York State has recently repealed its religious non-medical exemption for measles vaccination and has even closed private schools, which do not provide documentation evidencing full or nearly full compliance by faculty and students, that being because all the public schools must comply. What do you think of the repealing of that uh, exemption? I don't normally get politically active, but this is one time where I called both my state senator and my state assembly person to urge them to vote in favor of repealing the religious exemption. If God forbid someone has a medical issue, then that issue is there. I think there's a lot of misinformation and has been ever since my kids were little about vaccinations. And there's no question that nothing is perfect. Some people have been harmed by vaccines, but overwhelmingly, these vaccines have saved lives. Right, and there is no research, I understand, but linking vaccination and autism or other diseases, which I think is is the major fear of the anti-vaccination belief. I think that's one of the fears. I suspect that among various groups who choose not to immunize, there are other reasons which I can't even begin to understand. So it's not my area of expertise. But when I spoke with someone in our assemblywoman's office who happens to be an Orthodox Jew and urging her to vote for it, I said, you know, it's just like when someone is sitting Shiva, God forbid, for a loved one. That's after someone has died and we sit for seven days in memory of that person. Yes. Yeah. And what happens is that the Sabbath interrupts that and a holiday will 
basically end that mourning period. And it doesn't mean that we don't still feel grief. What it means is that the community's need to rejoice in the festival takes priority over the individual's need to mourn. To me, the good health of the community and the protection, pekuach nefesh, preservation of life, is the highest ideal in Judaism. It takes priority over every commandment with the exception of murder, improper sexual relationships, and idol worship. So to me, not immunizing flies in the face of that. And those individuals who, for some reason, medically cannot be immunized have to depend on what's called herd immunity. The more people who are vaccinated, the less likely there is that those who are at risk will be harmed. And now we're going to move to our first weekly segment called What's on Your Desk? about an issue or challenge facing one of your congregants. So Rabbi el what is on your desk today? I have, like many synagogues on Long Island and nationwide, an aging congregation. I am doing a lot of work in trying to help people create meaning and purpose in their lives in a Jewish context. The end of my elevator speech is, but not necessarily the one they might have been traumatized in growing up. We all have stories about Growing up in the 60s, 50s, 60s, 70s, Hebrew schools that were very authoritarian, not a lot of joy, and we've carried it with us. But we have to accept the fact that none of us are going to get out of here alive. So what do we do with the time that we have left, whether it's days, months, years, or decades? And I want people to think about what makes their lives meaningful, what they want to be able to do, how they can learn to advocate for themselves to get health care that doesn't dismiss symptoms because of their age. Very interesting. Well, as an estate planning attorney, I prepare many end-of-life as well as during-life documents for clients. One of those documents, which I think you're referring to, is a health care proxy that deals with health care decisions. And that document allows an adult to provide guidance to an agent to make health care decisions if the adult is not mentally competent to do so himself or herself. Among other issues, the health care proxy also deals with organ donation and issues involved in death, including burial or cremation. In my 30 years of law practice, I've represented many people of all faiths. As an attorney, I feel it's not my place to tell a client whether to be an organ donor or to choose burial or cremation. Sometimes clients even tell me they want to bury the urn with their ashes in it. But today I'm with a rabbi. So I wonder how you handle, Rabbi Okotsi, these two sensitive issues, namely organ donation as well as burial versus cremation when a congregant or a family member of a deceased congregant approaches you. Well, we'll take the easy one first, cremation. The second funeral that I ever officiated at as a rabbinical student was of a woman who wanted to be cremated. I didn't know what to do. I called up a mentor of mine who is a conservative rabbi and said, what do I do? And he said, you have to serve your congregation. People are opting for this more and more. You have to do it in a Jewish way. And the ashes need to be buried because that way they go back to the earth like they're supposed to. In Connecticut, there's a 48-hour waiting period between death and cremation, and I'm guessing that that's in case somebody changes their mind. I chose not to try to talk the family out of the cremation, but the sources that I have looked at all suggest that we should try to talk 
our loved ones out of opting for cremation. And also we're taught that even though one of the highest commandments is to honor your father and your mother and honor their wishes, this is one wish that we are encouraged and maybe even required to refuse. I won't get into all the details about cremation and one thing and another. It is not as eco-friendly as people think. There are a lot of reasons not to do it. It's become more of an issue since the Holocaust. Although there are people who want to be cremated because they want to be in solidarity with loved ones who were cremated during the Holocaust. But interestingly, this is not a new discussion because the reform movement in 1891 issued a responsum about creation versus burial, which I thought was very fascinating. Ultimately, her ashes were buried a couple of weeks later. And I also had explained the concept of kivura, which is the mitzvah, the commandment to bury our own dead. We take the shovel ourselves. And I said, you know, under normal circumstances, this is what we would do. And the family said, we want to do that. Well, there was a tiny pile of dirt and little like garden spades. And I'm watching this six foot, four inch son bending over and putting scoops of dirt on on the grave. And what I learned is what's important to families is what we need to honor. Organ donation is an interesting discussion in the Jewish community. I was raised that Jews were not allowed to be organ donors because we had to be buried with all of our parts for when the Messiah comes and we would be resurrected. And when I was taking a class in Jewish medical ethics in rabbinical school, I asked the teacher that. And what he said to me was, Sadia Gaon, who was a leader of the Babylonian Jewish community a little over a thousand years ago, had already taken care of that. And basically what he said was that the first to be brought back when the Messiah comes are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who are nothing but dust and ashes. So if God can bring them back to life from that, then God can certainly bring me back missing a gallbladder. Not that anybody donates gallbladders. Organ donation is considered to be a mitzvah, a commandment, not just a nice thing to do, because it goes along with the concept of pikuach nefesh, of preservation of life. There are a lot of things that need to be considered when someone opts for organ donation, and there's a lot that can be found online. There is something called the Halachic Organ Donor Organization, H-O-D dot either com or org, which provides information for the Jewish legal aspect of organ donation. And there are a variety of situations where it may or may not be appropriate. To me, postmortem organ donation is hugely important. It gives life to others. And one of the great medical ethical thinkers, Rav Moshe Feinstein, in the 60s or 70s had ruled that heart transplants were double murder. And that's because there was concern over what constituted death and was the taking the heart leading to the death of the donor, which obviously is a no-no. And they didn't work that well. The survival rate was dismal, and the person probably would have been better off continuing with his own heart. 20 years later, he had to reverse that position because it was doing so much better. So it's a tough question, but I do know that when my father passed away suddenly and unexpectedly, and we were asked whether he was an organ donor or not, he and my mother had not had that conversation. 
I wasn't really sure what the Jewish take on it was, and we did not donate his organs. Now, whether or not anything would have been usable, I don't know, but it's been bothering me for the past seven years. So I work to try to show people that this can be a very praiseworthy thing to consider. Very interesting, and thank you for that food for thought. And that's it for our 13th episode. Thank you, Rabbi Susan el for coming on the podcast today, and I wish you a happy and healthy New Year 5780. And to our listeners, please be sure to download this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you are there, please rate us with a review that might start. I just heard on the LA Law podcast that in Smithtown, the mother of one teammate on a high school baseball team donated her kidney to the sister of another teammate, thereby saving the life of the sister. What an inspiring story. And how can we further inspire you, our listeners? Our motto here at the LI Law Podcast is to educate and entertain you. Please let us know how we can do that further for you. Thanks for listening.